Lord. Thank you, Rick. Good morning, and please open your Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. This morning, we're going to take up the parable of the talents. So as we open the word together, let me pray for our time. Father in heaven, please shine the pure light of your word within our hearts that we may comprehend the message of your gospel. Please instill in us a reverence for your word and a desire to hear and respond so that we will increasingly walk in a manner worthy of you and worthy of the name of Christ. And thank you that through the blood of Christ we have been declared worthy. Now please encourage and convict us this morning to live in light of the person and the work of Christ. And this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. I have made two talents more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the Gospel of Matthew contains over a dozen parables. And the parables functioned to both conceal and reveal truth about God and his kingdom. The parables concealed truth from those who had a hard heart, those who were opposed to Jesus, those who did not treasure the words of Christ. They were concealed. But Jesus used parables to reveal about God, about the natures of his kingdom to his disciples, to those who would follow him. So these parables both reveal 
and conceal. And many of Jesus' parables begin with the statement, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then Jesus goes on to explain about the kingdom. Well, the parable that we have this morning also reveals much about the kingdom of God. And this parable, the parable of the talents, falls within what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's named that because chapters 24 and 25, Jesus is gathered with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And he's discussing the end of the world with them. He's discussing what's going to happen in the last days. It's a very intense discourse in chapters 24 and 25, where Jesus is talking about how false teachers will rise up and seek to lead others astray, how there will be nations rising up against nations in war. There's going to be famines and earthquakes, and then there's going to be great tribulation for Christians. But Jesus then gives them hope. He says, but after the tribulation, the Son of Man will return. And he will send his angels to all the corners of the earth to gather in God's people. So there's great hope. But Jesus gives them a very stern warning. He says, but wake up. Don't fall asleep. You do not know the day nor the hour of when the master will return. And this flows right into our parable this morning, or the parable right before this, the parable of the ten virgins. The gist of this parable is that the bridegroom is away, he's delayed. And five, or all ten of the women are sleeping, but when they wake up, five of them are ready. The Bible calls them wise. Five of them are not ready for the groom's return. The Bible calls them foolish. And it presses the question, are we wise or foolish in our anticipation of the bridegroom? In other words, are we wise or foolish with our lives in light of the return of Christ. And there's a warning at the end of this parable that Jesus gives, the parable of the ten virgins. The warning is, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. But the reality for us is, we're always prone to be drowsy, to fall asleep with respect to the anticipation of the return of Christ. Christ has promised that he will return, and the scriptures are very clear that we are to stay awake. We do not know the day nor the hour, and yet it is easy for us to fall asleep or at least to be drowsy with respect to our anticipation and investment in the world while uh, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father before his return. And if I can be Captain Obvious here, uh, our culture doesn't necessarily help us with the thought of being awake in the culture around us. In fact, if it's according to Hollywood, um, Hollywood is not convinced and our culture is not convinced that the end will come with the return of Christ with judgment and with him ushering us into the new heavens and the new earth. And in fact, according to Hollywood, it would be something more like, yes, the world may end, but it may end with an alien invasion, or it may end with a meteor strike, or it may end because of our lack of care for the environment, or my personal favorite, it may end with a zombie apocalypse, right? 
And if you're not familiar with the zombie apocalypse, essentially something goes really, really wrong with the world and zombies are now chasing you. Okay? Sometimes they're really fast. Sometimes they're really slow, depending on the director. But they're chasing you. Uh, and, and this is, it makes for an interesting conversation. And in fact, in, in my own car at times, we'll be driving down the road and one of my kids will say, okay, dad, a zombie apocalypse happens right now. What would you do? Where would you go? What kind of weapons would you use? I mean, these are legitimate conversations in my car. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But, uh, and I have settled, by the way, on uh, buying a pontoon boat because there's no evidence zombies can swim. But anyway... It, it, it makes for interesting conversations, and it's kind of a game, right? It's kind of a game. But actually, in the grand scope of things, it's not a game. Because an apocalypse is coming. The very word apocalypse means revelation, an unveiling, a disclosing. Jesus will return. There is a true apocalypse coming. He will return in judgment, he will return to usher in the new heavens and new earth. And Jesus is pressing the point. In light of the true apocalypse that is coming, the day that he will return, what do we need to be about? That's what this section of scripture is pressing. That's what this parable presses for us. But also throughout this scripture, we're pressed with this. As Rick read this morning, that Second Peter 3 passage, it says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the earth and all the works done on it will be exposed. And then the question is asked by Peter, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? It's a question that the scriptures press, and it's a question that Jesus presses. So how are we to live in light of his return? Well, this parable has much to teach us this morning. And oftentimes, in parables, the characters represent main points. So we'll make our way through the characters of this parable with the intent to ask the question, what are we to hear and how are we to respond to the parable this morning? So Jesus says in verse 14, essentially the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. Okay, Jesus is actually referring to himself that he will go on the journey. And the journey that he is talking about is the journey to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. Okay, And even in chapter 26 of Matthew, just one chapter later in verse 2, Jesus reveals to his disciples, he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So this parable is actually what Jesus is pointing to is the time between his death and resurrection and the return of Christ. This parable is taking place between the resurrection and the return of Christ. And again, pressing the question, how do we live in light of his return? So we also know that the, that the master calls his servants and he entrusted to them his property. So In a sense, the master makes these three servants partners with him. And they're called to watch and they're called to invest, knowing that the master will return. And what the master does in this parable is he gives one person five talents, one person two talent, and one person one talent. 
Now, biblically speaking, a talent, that they, the way they would have understood a talent, was a weight of measure that would have been worth quite a, a, quite a bunch of money. Um, quite a bunch of money. That sounded odd, but we'll keep going. Uh, the talent... Uh, the talent would be, a, sometimes the weight would be in gold, in silver, it could be in copper. But roughly one talent was equivalent to about 20 years of a wage. So each talent is worth a lot. We have a master who's very rich and distributes these talents to the servants. So how do we translate the talents now? Because obviously we're not carrying around gold and silver um, in talents in these forms. But what are the talents that God has entrusted to us? As we think about talents, it's good for us to think about all of life stewardship to God. Everything that God has entrusted to us. So our talents would be our spiritual gifts, our natural abilities. It would be opportunities that God grants to us. It is our time. It is circumstances. It's our money. It's our possessions. Our talents are all that God has provided. Okay? Again, this is whole life stewardship before the Lord. So, he gives the talents, and then he asks his servants, so what have you done with the money? And what we find is the one with five talents basically invested well, doubled the money, and Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. The one of two talents does the same thing. He invests, he doubles his money, but Jesus says the same thing to both of them. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But then comes the, then comes the servant that was granted the one talent. And this is when we have a drastic mood change in this parable. If this were being shot into a movie, this is where the the dark clouds would begin rolling in, the serious music, you know, like Jaws music would begin playing. Potentially you'd see a zombie off in the distance, limping slowly. Major mood change takes place right here. And there's a major contrast, and that's what Jesus is pointing to. And if you notice, there are actually twice... There's twice as many verses devoted to the person with one talent as the rest of them. It's because Jesus is making a point of this person in a major contrast. What we see is the person with one talent dug a hole and hid his talent in the ground. Now, back then they did not have banks, so it could be normal for somebody to bury something that's valuable. But that's not exactly what's going on here. Because the servant makes an excuse. And if we can read between the lines, essentially he's saying, Master, it's really your fault that I hid your talent, because you are a hard man to please. So I was afraid, and I hid your talent, but here you go, here's your one talent. So that servant does not invest. And the master has very strong words for him. He says, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew what was expected. You ought to have invested. And then the master ends this parable saying this, Cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness and that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the imagery of hell. So 
So Jesus is making a huge contrast between well done, good and faithful servant and you slothful and wicked servant. And this seems very extreme. And we have to ask, why is this so extreme? This would have jolted the listeners in that day. It should jolt us. Again, parables are always calling forth a response. So the point that we have to understand with this parable is that the master has entrusted the world to his servants. In other words, the master has entrusted the work of the kingdom to us. And to be clear, Jesus is ruling and reigning over the world, but he calls us to participate in his rule and his reign, and he calls us to invest faithfully. So the question this morning is, what do we need to hear and how do we need to respond with this parable? Well, there's a strong warning in the passage, and that is the servant with the one talent. What we have to understand is this servant does not represent a Christian. This is a servant that would represent an unbeliever, somebody who God has given them gifts, but they have hid their gifts. They have turned their back on the master, so to speak. And even beyond that, um, their perspective on the master is wrong. This servant, can, he failed to see the goodness and the grace of the master. And instead, he refers to the master. He says, you're a hard man. In other words, you could say you're harsh or you're cruel. So his perspective on the master is completely different than the one who has five talents and the one who has two talents. And as well, the, one was, the servant with one talent makes an accusation of the master. He says, I know that you reap where you do not sow. But that's not actually accurate because the master has sowed. He has granted, he has entrusted talents to his servants. That's how he sows and he expects a return. And the master is right to get a return on his investment. But the actions of the servant with one talent reveals his heart. He is a wicked and slothful servant. And there is a contrast between this perspective of the master and the one with five talents and the one with two talents. For the Christian, we have a different perspective of a master who is good and gracious and actually provides all that we need to please him. And so the five talent and the two talent servants, they both invested, they both doubled the money, and they were excited to reveal to the master what they have done, how they have invested their lives. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servants. Okay, so you could say the five talent and the two talent were very successful, which let's ask this question, what does it mean to be successful? What does that look like in our lives? Because what the parable will do is to help us to have a right perspective on success. There's definitely some faulty thinking in our culture when it comes to success. There's a couple of statements that are made at times. One statement is, if you work hard enough, you can be anybody you want to be, or you can do anything you want to do. That's one statement. And the other statement is, if you work hard enough, you can be the best. So let's just assess those questions. If you work hard enough, you can be anybody you want to be or do anything you want to do. 
you know, years ago I was in my college Sunday school class and I was teaching them. And I said, okay, so most of you probably heard for much of your life, if you work hard enough, you can do anything you want to do or be anything you want to be, right? And they're all nodding. They, they've heard this. I said, okay. And I had one particular student stand up who's not the biggest dude in the room. I said, okay, this student here, he actually wants to be a defensive lineman for an NFL team. Does he just have to work hard? And like light bulbs, oh yeah, no. There's no way. Because there's constraints. There's limitations to all of our lives. And that's actually okay. And it's actually good. Yes, we work hard, but we recognize there is a sovereign God who gives us talents, gives us abilities, gives us purpose in life. But it's not about us always deciding whatever we want to be. There are good constraints and good limits. And the other reality of this, uh, or the other statement at times, if you just work hard enough, you can be the best. That distorts the biblical view of success when we're not careful because it plays into our idols of success. Our culture has a great idol of success. And when I say idol, I'm talking about the things that we place our faith, our hope, and our love in above God. Here's what Tim Keller says. He's a pastor in New York, writes in Counterfeit Gods, his book. He says this about the idol of success. He says, more than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and our value rest in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. To be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means no one is like you. You are supreme. See, the biblical version of success is not that we become like God. It's not that we're supreme. The biblical idea of success is measured in degree of our faithfulness to God with what God has entrusted to us. So success is a thankful response to God, the outpouring of our lives with all of our gifts and our abilities and our talents. So the parable helps us to have a right perspective of success, success in order to, with everything we have, our time, our talents, our circumstances, our spiritual gifts, our natural abilities, our trials, our celebrations, everything we have that God has entrusted to us. The measure of success is our ability to really offer that to the Lord and to invest well. This also, this parable helps us to give the right perspective on our various callings. So John Calvin he is an old dead guy. Um, we like John Calvin around here. Good pastor, great theologian. Says this, he defined talents, according to this parable, as gifts from God in the form of a person's calling and natural ability. And his, his concept was, our talents are, are our callings in life. And so we can think about callings in a couple of ways. One is, we are called by God. First and foremost, we're called as followers. But then that idea of our calling, our vocations in life, is always linked. Not just with God has called us to this, but it's linked also with our responsibility in the world. In other words, popular verse, many people recognize the Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
that verse goes on. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that that we should walk in them. Okay, so our salvation by grace is always linked with our calling, our responsibility to the world around us in order to glorify God. So um, there's one artist in particular that is very thoughtful about God. And this artist had this quote once. He said, I'm a musician. I write songs. I just hope when the day is done, I've been able to tear a little corner off of the darkness. So he's talking about his own particular calling. I'm a musician. I write songs. But when the day is done, I've been, uh, uh, but I just hope that when the day is done, I've been able to tear a little corner off the darkness. This musician is making a profound point because it's an entirely biblical point that what we're called as salt and light is to tear corners off of the darkness of the culture around us. And we tear those corners when we seek to live righteously. And we tear those corners off the darkness when we seek to hinder the unrighteousness in the world as well. So I actually have a prop this morning. Don't get excited. It's, it's not a great prop. It's two pieces of black paper. Okay? So the paper represents the culture around us, the darkness of the culture. And so what we have in this parable is we have corners of darkness that are being tore off. This one represents the five-talent servant who tears off a corner of the darkness, right? This one represents two-talent. Not very profound, right? But here's what's profound. Both the five and the two are called to tear off corners of the darkness with respect to what God has entrusted to us. They are both called to be equally faithful with what God has provided, with their gifts, their talents, their abilities, their time, their circumstances, the hardships, the trials, all of it. And what Jesus says to both the five talent and the two talent is the exact same thing. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, the question is, what is on your paper? What's on your paper? God entrusts to all of us relationships and responsibilities. And the question is, what has God put right in front of us? What does our whole life stewardship look like? Now, we could go all the way back and we could talk about the creation mandate. We know that God called Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And the intent was always to fill the earth with the glory of God, with the righteousness of God. But then that command is also given to Noah after the flood. He's commanded to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The creation mandate still continues. It's been passed on to us as well. We are called to be fruitful, to fill the earth with righteousness. In other words, we really are called to tear corners of the darkness off the culture around us. And can I suggest that it's probably not going to be feeding 
all the hungry in Africa. It's probably our calling or your personal calling is probably not going to be the evangelism of every unreached tribe in the world. Now, are those phenomenal things? Yes. But we have to ask the question, what has God put? What's on our paper? And you know what it's going to be? For the Christian, it's going to be a whole lot of ordinary mixed with occasional moments of extraordinary. Right? Christian life is a whole lot of ordinary mixed with occasional bursts of extraordinary. And so God has called us to invest well in the realm of relationships and responsibilities. So in the realm of relationships, what does it look like to invest well with our friendships? To be strive to be a very faithful friend. Making sure that even our conversations are well done, good and pleasing conversations. Which would go against slander and gossip and being crude and things of that nature. How do we glorify God with our friendships and encourage them towards Christ? Our investment in relationships is going to look, uh, it's going to be profound with the sense of our families, our marriages, and our children. Okay? What does it look like to nurture Christian faith in our home? What does it look like for prayer? There is, to this day, a great, I, I draw great encouragement from a seminary professor who once gave our class this beatitude. He said, blessed is the man who restarts devotions. I thought, amen. Because at times, nurturing our family in prayer, opening up the word, there are seasons where it's just really difficult. Okay? Blessed is the man who restarts devotions. Blessed is the man who seeks And when I say man, it was a class of all guys. Blessed are the parents, the men and women who seek to cultivate faithful investment in their marriages and with their children. It's also cultivating relationships with our our neighbors and our coworkers and people who are right under our nose. Let's think about who are the people that are right under our nose day after day, week after week in our lives. And what does it look like to actually invest? Praying for them. Praying for opportunities to open up conversation with them about the things of the Lord, about the gospel. And it takes time and it takes diligence. And at times we need to cultivate relationships, especially with those who are difficult. Treating people as created in the image of God with dignity. And there are times in our lives when our heads may be in our hands. And it may be through weeping and tears because of difficult circumstances. Of loving people who are difficult to love. Whether it's members in our own household. Whether it is co-workers. Whether it is neighbors. Whoever it may be. But we have to remember this and remind each other. God entrusts to us. We invest At times we may cry out, it is too much, I can't, it's too difficult. And yet we have to recognize God has entrusted to us particular circumstances, even when they're difficult. And he's given all that we need. We have all that we need. And especially the very power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives to convict us, to guide us, to give us wisdom. God has truly given us what we need. And again, it's a whole lot of ordinary with occasional moments of extraordinary. And you can't invest in everyone. But who has God placed under our nose? 
Also, with our investment, what does it look like with our relation or with our responsibilities? And I think about this in a couple of ways. One, with our responsibilities, we're called as worshipers to do this well in here, but we're also called as workers to do it well out there, right? But first, as worshipers. We really are called to be faithful week after week to gather together so that we glorify together in a unified voice. We praise together. We confess together. And how important is it that we're tearing off the corners of darkness in our own lives with our confession each week? So we're called to invest well on a Sunday morning. And we're also called to invest well with our money. God calls us to give sacrificially and generously. And actually, the biblical standard for giving is at least 10% of our income. And what this challenges, this challenges us with our idol of success, that we have to be reminded it is God who has entrusted our money and our possessions to us. It's actually his. And he calls us to invest. And part of the investment is he calls to give generously. He calls us to give sacrificially. It's a great challenge. And Rick, as he talked this morning about the widow who gave, who invested everything she had sacrificially and the way God honors that, the what we sacrifice with our money and our possessions tells us a lot about our trust in God and our idea of success. We also are to invest well in one another. And and the question, what does it look like to invest well in the body of Christ? Well, this passage, the next section of Scripture, Jesus goes on to talk about what it means to really care for one another. This is what he says in Matthew 25, verse 34. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers... You did it to me. Jesus is making a profound point here that as we care for the body of Christ, he's talking about believers here. As we care for each other, we are actually caring for Christ. Okay? Now, this also calls us to care for the world, but it really does start with the family of God that we really do invest well here. And as we read this bulletin, If we were just to glance through it and go through it, a lot of things we can be praying for, right? A lot of ways that we can serve, and we can't do it all. No one person should do all of this. But the question is, where do do we see the needs? And how do we assess our giftedness and our ability to step into the needs and to invest well as worshipers? And again, we're called to not just invest well as worshipers, but invest well as workers. And when I I say I use work very generally in the sense of could be paid or unpaid, could be volunteer, it's the things that we do day in and day out with our days, week in and week out. God calls us to invest well. 
And he calls us to invest with great integrity, great diligence, great honesty, because God is actually at work through us. There's a statement uh, that God hides in our work. In other words, God could at any moment snap his fingers and he could do our relationships and our responsibilities for us. And he could do it perfectly. But God hides in our work in the sense that he calls us to invest in the world and he works through us to that end. So years ago, when Tiffany and I were in St. Louis, we were finishing up seminary, but we had bought a house, and this was a major fixer-upper for a house. Um, And I was in over my head, and so a lot of tasks to be done, so I was taking major shortcuts. Well, there was a man in our church, a man named Harold Baca, who was a great handyman, and he would donate a lot of his time and energy to helping me out. He'd be working alongside me at times. And there was one time in particular where I was taking a major shortcut on a job. And Harold says, you know, here's what I often tell my boys, Chad. He says, I tell them, the world needs men who do it right the first time. Boom. (laughs) That one has stuck with me. And if I can translate it, the world needs Christians who do it right and righteously the first time. Because if we bear witness to the name of Christ, what does that mean with how we invest in our work? And so with all this, we could have two responses. One response is, oh, with all my relationships and my responsibility on my own sheet of paper, it's too much. I'm a failure. That's not a good response. And in fact, the tragedy is when the five talent looks at the uh, the two talent and thinks they're superior, Or the two-talent looks at the five-talent and thinks they're inferior. God calls us not to look off each other's sheets. uh, We're not to cheat. We're not to compare. But rather, a good response to this parable is, Thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted certain relationships and responsibilities, and you've given me all that I need. Lord, help me to be faithful. Help me to be diligent. Help me to glorify you and honor you with what I do. So, this leads us to the last point, and that is, this parable gives us perspective on motivation to live the Christian life. Okay, and this will be brief. Our motivation must be the joy of the master. Jesus says, well done, enter into the joy of your master. And his joy must really be our joy. His joy should define our joy. And great Great quote in Chariots of Fire. Many of you know this quote. Um, It's Eric Little, the Olympian, when he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. But he goes on to say something else. He says to give that up would be to hold him in contempt. To win is to honor him. To win is to honor him. Eric Little had it right. To win, to use my talents... It really is to honor God. It's to glorify him. And if I can speak to the youth and maybe even the adults just for a minute. What we see often is we see superstars. And we see them do great things. And we see them win the game. And they are flexing their muscles. And they are pointing to their jerseys. And they're pointing to themselves. And we have to see that with clear eyes. That that's actually really unfortunate. And it's really disgusting, actually. It is an arrogant display, whereas Eric Little would say, 
I run to the glory of God. I feel his pleasure and it's for him. My talents, my gifts are for him. And that's the calling for all of us to live our lives in a way that we bring glory to God, which means the question we should not ask is, am I a five talent or two talent person? That's not the question, but rather the question is, with what God has entrusted to me, how am I investing? Okay? Or how will this word, this thought, this deed, how will this look on the day of judgment? Or maybe it's this question. With all that I put my energy and my effort and my heart to, am I really trying to glorify myself or am I trying to glorify God? And yes, these are difficult questions. Yes, they are. They move us to confession. Jesus says, Well done. You've been faithful over little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And this is mind-blowing. I can't fully fathom and wrap my head around this. The idea of whatever we invest faithfully on the earth has ramifications in the world to come. And this idea of these responsibilities in life are incredibly important, and yet they point to the new heavens and new earth of even greater responsibility, even greater privilege, even greater delight in the world that is to come. And it should blow our minds, and it should offer great motivation for living life to God's glory while we're on this earth. And finally, this parable calls forth a response. Notice that the parable that the five talent and the two talent immediately went and invested. And God is calling us to go to invest. And think about this. The master has sown us, has planted us throughout Lawrence and the surrounding community of Lawrence. And he has entrusted with us everything we need to tear off corners of the darkness around our lives. He's given us the very power of the Holy Spirit, and he has given us a great promise. And I will close with Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority has been given to Christ. And so he says, go. Go and invest to where the ultimate statement that we can hear at the end of our life would be well done. Good and faithful servant. And let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, you have entrusted to us the Holy Spirit and all that we need to live and glorify you. Help us. Help us to invest well. Help us to invest in our relationships. Help us to invest in our responsibilities. That we would truly glorify you and would you give us opportunities to proclaim you? Would you give us opportunities to do good works in your name? Would you give us opportunities to speak the truth of the gospel to those who need to hear? And Father, part of our investment is truly investing in each other and loving one another. And so our prayer this morning is for some of our uh, some of our loved ones in our congregation. We pray for Ken and for Sue Demarest as Ken's father went to be with the Lord last Sunday. Pray that you would be with them, strengthen them, encourage them as they grieve. And Father, for Jerry Upchurch, 
for Dave and Jerry, they've traveled in Birmingham uh, to Birmingham to be with their brother, Jerry's brother, who was in a car accident. And uh, though his life is not in critical condition, uh, one of his legs has been uh, severely damaged. And so we pray that you would give the doctors great skill and, uh, and that they would be able to save his leg and that he would come to a great recovery. And, Father, there are other needs in our congregation, much in the realm of hurt and much in the realm of the need to invest and the difficulty of investing, but help us to invest well for the glory of Jesus' sake. And it's in his name that we pray.